You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Hey, Resonate. My name is Stephen, and I am the site pastor at our site in Reno, Nevada. Go Wolfpack! Uh, this week, we're in the last week of this sermon series titled The Life That You've Always Wanted. And essentially, throughout this sermon series, it has been our hope and our goal to compare what the world says will lead you to the life you've always wanted with what we believe the Bible says will truly lead us to the life that we've always wanted. And we spent the first couple weeks looking at uh, some, some faulty foundations, um, and we're spending these, these last two weeks looking at what firm foundations are. And I want to explain that a little bit. Um, Recently, my wife and I, uh, we bought a home. We bought a home this past year. Um, And if you've never been through a home buying experience, especially one that's that's kind of time sensitive, uh, we bought a home in preparation to move to Reno, Um, then then you know kind of what I'm talking about already. But I'll explain this. Uh, When you buy a home, there's, there's very specific things you look for. There's things that you look for in the home, and, and before you're in the actual market, the things you might look for are the way that things look, um, specifically um, features that you want to have. You dream about your awesome bathroom or master bedroom or whatever, but when you're really in the market, you try to look beyond those things. You try to look beyond what's on the surface, what might draw people in. So people fix up houses in order to sell them to try to bring a higher value. But if you, if you want to really uh, look into the, to the home for the sake of buying it, then you need to look into things like the foundation of the home. Um, some people say this home is, it needs some work, but it has good bones. Uh, that's, a, that's a phrase that some homeowners buy or some, invest, or some home, homeowners use and some investors use. Um, and essentially what they say by a house has good bones is it means it has, has a solid foundation and it has... Um, things about it that make it friendly to renovations and upkeep and different things like that. So when we were buying our home, uh, we were looking for those kinds of things. We were looking at houses that were kind of rough around the edges but had good bones. Uh, And the house that we ended up buying, uh, throughout the buying process, we had several inspections done. And during one of the inspections, the inspector found that there was some cracking along some of the basement walls and there were some signs in the, the upstairs of cracking uh, along some of the drywall. Uh, and those signs are, are common, common issues um, that are caused by movement in the foundation. And uh, if you know anything about the way a house works is you, you lay the foundation first and everything is built off of that. So everything is determined um, based on the foundation of the home and the, the foundation has to be able to support the home. So if the foundation is bad, Eventually, the house is going to have some problems. Those problems will get worse. And there's some things that you can can look for to notice that. And our house had some of those signs. And so we spent a bunch of time and and extra money making sure that the the foundation issues that uh, there were symptoms of were not to an extent that would warrant us to to back out of the buying process. Um, And thankfully, uh, there was most of the foundation movement happened as the soil underneath the home and the foundation settled shortly after it was built and there was no catastrophic news and everything worked out well. Um, But throughout the course of this series, it's been our hope um, after reading a passage of scripture in Matthew 7 where Jesus talks about 
a firm foundation and a faulty foundation, um, our lives being rooted on the rock of Christ versus the sands of the world around us, uh, we think it's essential for you to be asked questions to start digging into whether or not your life, not your home, is built on a sound foundation. Is your foundation uh, on the rock of Christ or is it on the shifting sands? And so our first week, we talked about money and success. And the second week, we talked about the fear of man as two examples of faulty foundations. That our world says, if you pursue these things, if you achieve this, if you get people to think about you this way, then you're going to have the life that you always wanted. And so our, our goal was to expose those things, to strip away the drywall, to lift up the carpets and recognize that the, the, those foundations are faulty. Um, they're, they're not good. They're going to lead us to destruction. And last week, we looked at what the Bible says is our firm foundation, the words of Christ, the Christ himself being our firm foundation. Um, and so we dove into John 15. And we looked at what it means to abide in Christ, how to set our lives on the foundation of Jesus and for everything that we do to flow out of that. And so really the, the answer to the life that you've always wanted is found in setting your life on the foundation of Jesus. And so my hope today as we close out this series is basically to look at what does that mean for us as we understand our new identity in Jesus and that being our foundation, what does it move us towards? What are we to do now? And specifically, I want to look at how our identity is changed when we come to know Christ and what that means for the way that we interact with the world around us, or more specifically, the way that we, we interact with one another. And so last week, we, we dove into John 15, and we looked at what it means to abide in Christ. Essentially, we looked at what does it mean for us to set the foundation of our lives on the rock of Christ? How do we remain with Jesus and keep him as our foundation? And so this week, uh, in light of understanding that our foundation ought to be set on Jesus, what I want to do is help us to understand how our identity has changed and how that relates to the, to the way that we interact with the people around us. And I, I think that there's, there's some tension in our world right now around this idea of unity with one another. We live in a history in a, or a time in history where it seems like people are more divided than ever, which is somewhat ironic because we simultaneously live in a moment in history where people are more connected than they've ever been before. And what I mean by that is we have access to lines of communication with people all the way across the world that, that didn't exist in, in the past. Um, and the frequency of those interactions can be as high as we want. We can develop a close relationship with somebody on the other side of the world with the technology that we have today. But for some reason, and I, and I think you understand some of these reasons, our world seems like it's getting more and more divided as time goes on. Uh, some of that might have to do with um, things that have happened in the past few years and how on edge everybody was with the pandemic um, and, and so many other things, but we seem to be headed in op the opposite direction of unity. Um, I, I did a, a quick Google search before this um, about common topics of controversial conversation. And I want to just read some of these to you because I think there's, there's likely going to be, as I read these, some kind of reaction you have. And I want to ask you to hold off on reacting. Don't say anything as I read these. Don't try to let out your opinion or what you affirm or don't affirm. But I just want to give you, this is a list of 15 things that are, are 
topics that are, are very divided in our culture today. So uh, we've got gun control, abortion, religious freedom, animal rights, vaccines, privacy rights, free market capitalism, global climate change, evolution, marijuana legalization, capital punishment, marriage equality, transgender rights, student debt crisis, universal health care. And now for the most part, those are those are primarily political in, in the way that we see the disunity. Um, but I believe in general that along with these topics and many other, um, we see a lot of discourse back and forth between people or discord back and forth between people. Um, and, and it would seem like people's intention would want to, to reach some kind of middle ground. But as they have these kind of conversations and um, as these conversations go on longer, it seems like people are just becoming more and more polarized from one another. We're seeing uh, as we engage in more frequent communication around these things, usually on platforms where there's no interpersonal interaction, people are getting more and more divided. Um, and this is, this is interesting to notice because it, it seems like it's not only happening over the internet, but uh, it's, it's causing something else to happen in interpersonal interactions. When we interact with people in our world today and we find out that there is a, um, a disunity in the way that we see the world, people are used to engaging in that over uh, non-face-to-face platforms, but when it comes to a face-to-face interaction, people seem to try to kill the conversation immediately. So I don't know if you guys have noticed this as much as I do, but as soon as you find out that you disagree on somebody, with, uh, disagree on something with somebody else, there's often this like, oh, cool, like, that's cool for you. Uh, there's almost this like culture of you do you, I'm gonna do me, and if we're in person, we're not gonna talk about any differences. Um, we're becoming a hyper-individualized group of people. I, I read a, some research that a, a Barna study group did, and uh, the author David Kinneman wrote this, and I think it's, it's very applicable to where we're at today. He says, social media, for all of the remarkable benefits of the digital tools like Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, and Instagram, can make connecting across these gaps more difficult, not less. In spite of the truly wonderful gifts of the digital revolution, social media at its worst can magnify our differences, making it even harder to have conversations that matter. For one thing, it can make it more difficult to see other people for who they really are. For another, it helps us find the tiny cliques of people who are already convinced of the crazy things we believe. Social media makes it far too easy to self-select voices that always affirm and never challenge our assumptions and sacred cows. Plus, many of our sanest thinkers and leaders are choosing to stay out of the fray altogether. They've clued in that the most strident and extreme voices are liked, shared, and retweeted, not the most reasonable ones. So there's proof in our world that the more we talk about these things, the, the more we seem to be divided. And I don't just think that it's, ta- that, that it's happening along the lines of political and social divide. I also think it's happening in the church. Uh, a, a Barna study done in 2014 polled thousands of people and asked the question of these people if they considered church to be a valuable thing. And the research showed that 51% of the total population, including Christians, uh, identified church as either 
not too or not at all important. So over half of people in our world today think church is no big deal. Um, go or don't go, it, it doesn't really matter. And what was additionally interesting is that they found if you, if you split it up into demographics, as time has gone on at, in newer and newer generations and younger people, uh, the, the data is becoming more and more skewed. So the youngest of our population today is the most convinced that church doesn't matter at all. So not only does the data show that people are becoming more and more divided and they're becoming more and more disinterested in church, um, in recent years, the church has also been a, a target of critique, a target of intolerance, a target of separation, of political um, disalignment. And so I believe, Resonate, that uh, the church is becoming more divided as the world is becoming more divided. And this is, this is a terrible thing. I believe that it's Satan's goal to divide the church. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. So my hope today um, is to speak to you that are believers in the room and to tell you that I believe uh, it is crucial it is, it is core to our identity that we do life together. Uh, and for the non-believer in the room, if you don't call Jesus Lord today, my hope is that through uh, the, the scripture that we're going to read, and as we dig into it, you'll understand that apart from Jesus, um, what, is, what is offered to us in the world is destruction and death. And with Jesus, we are offered a firm foundation. We're offered... Um, salvation and we're offered a new identity. So we're going to walk through that identity and I want to help you see why that identity includes doing life together. And then at the end, we're going to look at um, the example that was set by the early believers in the book of Acts and how they, knowing that their lives needed to be fully founded on Jesus, how they interacted with one another, how they lived together. So our text today is going to be Ephesians 2, specifically verses 11 through 22. So I want to read that with you first, and then we'll back up a little bit, give a little bit of context and dive back in. So uh, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you, that you who were once far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in a moment, we're going to go back through these verses and we're going to, to look at this, this metaphor that Paul uses to describe their new identity in Christ in light of the blood of Jesus. But before we do so, I want to give you guys a little bit of context of the book of Ephesians itself. The book of Ephesians was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus or to the saints in Ephesus. And it's important to know that, that Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles and he's speaking to a group of Gentile Christians. Um, it's important to note that they're Gentiles because uh, their presuppositions and all the, the things that, all the cultural things that are, are true about them are not the same as what was true about the kingdom of Israel. So in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel was God's chosen people. But now under the new covenant, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, um, even Gentiles have the opportunity to be saved. And in the Old Testament, we'll get to this in a moment, there was some very clear distinctions that separated the Israelites and the Gentiles. And in addition, uh, we're reading in the middle of a letter that was originally intended to be written in its full length um, by this group of Christians. So it's important to note that starting in the middle, there, there's some things that Paul has already said. And I think that it's important for us to understand them in order to understand our text. So I want to give you a brief summary really quick of, of what Paul has communicated in this passage leading up to this point. He starts with a greeting to the saints and he reminds them of the spiritual blessings that they have in Christ. Uh, they're, they're super rich verses. I encourage you to read those for yourself. They're very encouraging. Um, and then he, he tells these Christians, he reminds them, um, that before the foundations of the world, God knew them and he planned to adopt them into his family. He speaks of the intimacy that, and hope that they have in Jesus for all of eternity. And then he closes out his introduction by thanking God and praying for them. And then um, in the next 10 verses, Ephesians 1 through 10, he sets up the passage that we're about to read in a moment. And in these verses... It, I, I would encourage you to read verses 1 through 10. They are some of the most clear um, and, and well-put explanation of the gospel of Jesus that you'll ever find. It says in, the, in these verses that, that before Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were completely hopeless in our sin and our brokenness before the cross. But God, being rich in mercy with the love that he loved us, sent Christ to die on our behalf. And that it's by grace that we have been saved through faith, uh, not any of our doing. None of our works were responsible for our salvation. It was a free gift to us so that we may not boast and we can have confidence in Jesus. So right after Jesus says that, uh, we end up in the verses that, that we just read. And so I want to read back through these kind of slowly, uh, chunk by chunk, and break this down for you. So let's start again in verse 11. It starts off, Therefore... Therefore, referring to verses 1 through 10 and the new hope that these Gentiles have, remember that you were at one time Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by the, made in the flesh by hand. So this is a reminder that at one point in time, before Jesus, Gentiles were distinctively different than Israelites. They were uncircumcised, the Israelites were circumcised, and it was a it was, it was a mark, a physical thing that displayed who
who were God's people and who wasn't. And so he, he's, he's telling them, remember, you who were once the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He goes on to say, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So he's telling these people, he's telling these Gentiles that before God sent Jesus and saved us, that they were separated from Christ. They were incapable of being with Christ. They were separated from God's people. They were aliens. They were separated from the the commonwealth, the inheritance of Israel. And they were separated from hope. They were a godless, hopeless people before Christ. He's reminding them that left to ourselves, we will choose sin and our sin will lead to our destruction. And then he continues on from there. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. There's no longer any separation between the Gentiles and the Israelites. Christ has broken down this wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new new man in place of two, so making peace. No longer distinction between Jew and Gentile. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross destroyed this separation. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him, we both have access in God, in, in one spirit to the Father. Because of Christ, we have been reconciled to him and united to one another. No longer any um, ethnic divide between God's people. No longer any ge- geographical divide between God's people. And it is by the blood of Christ that we who were once far off have been brought near. So this, not, this is not only a message to these Gentile Christians to remind them, but it's a message to us today too, that in our trespasses and sins, we were dead. We were without Jesus. We were without hope. We were without God. We were cast out. We were aliens from the, com- or, um, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But because of the blood of Christ, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, his death and resurrection, we have been brought near. And he goes on to say that now by the Spirit of God living in us and through Christ, we have access to the Father. We have access to God himself through Jesus, the God of the universe, has given us access to himself. So let's continue reading in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizen with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I want to dig into these three verses specifically because I believe that that Paul provides some really rich understanding of what it means to have our identity in Christ. And to these Gentile Christians, he uses these dichotomies of what they were like before Jesus and what they're like now that I think we can understand for ourselves as well. So the first one that he says is he says that 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. So Paul is saying that we are fellow citizens with, with one another. If you know Jesus, you are a fellow citizen with all other believers of Jesus. That means that we are, we are citizens of a different kingdom. You and I are no longer citizens of some territory or country on this earth. We are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of God. God is our ruler and he's perfect and he's just. And we get to celebrate because it, at the end of our days, we will, get to, we will get to see his kingdom come to fruition. We will get to see it actualized, but we get to experience it now. And so I don't know where you're at with your, your current citizenship status, whether you like being an American citizen or if you're not an American, American citizen, whatever kind of citizen you are. If you're, if you're fond of it, if you're thankful for the freedoms and rights that you have, or you wish that you lived somewhere else. But to these Gentile Christians specifically, Paul is writing during a time in history in which the, the prized citizenship was Roman citizenship. And so the, this, this group of people in Ephesus were constantly being seen as second-class citizens to Roman citizens. Roman citizenship bought you wonderful privileges all over. And, and so pa Paul is telling them that you're no longer second-class citizens. We're no longer second-class to any, any citizenship because we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. He then goes on to say that uh, we, are, we are also members of the household of God. So in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. Now he's telling them that, that you also, as Gentiles, because of Christ, get to be a part of God's household, which means it makes you and I brothers and sisters. God as our heavenly father, God as our perfect father. Um, and we, we see this imagery again in, in chapters one and two, where he talks about us being adopted into the family of God. Uh, and so because of Jesus, because of the unity we find in Jesus, our new identity makes us uh, a family. It makes us brothers and sisters with one another. And with family becomes responsibility. Uh, we are all a family under the same household. Jesus, God is our father, um, and the church is the family that Jesus created. The church is part of our identity as Christians. It is not just a building that you go to church or that you go to um, worship services at. And the third distinction that he makes is he says that we are stones in a temple with one another. So we're fellow citizens, we're family, and we're stones in a temple. And this may be the most challenging of the three things that he recognizes for us to understand for ourselves. Um, but for, for nearly 1,000 years, uh, the temple had been the focal point of Israel. And now Paul is saying that this, the place in which God dwells is something that he is using us to build. He says that there's a new temple. It's a temple made up of people, and the people that are making it up are us. It's the Gentiles, it's the Jews, it's the apostles and prophets, and Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The very foundation of the temple is built on the, the teaching of the prophets and the apostles with Jesus being the cornerstone, which means Jesus is the thing that keeps us aligned. He, he gives integrity to the whole structure, and then it's his word, it's what he spoke through the apostles and prophets that, that make up our foundation. And so Jew and Gentile alike are now being built together into a dwelling place for the Lord in the spirit. 
So the, what I'm getting at here is that we were made to do life together. Core to the identity that we have, we are meant to be together as Christians. In a world where we are completely divided and we're headed into further and further disunity and division, uh, our identity in Christ tells us that we are to be together. We are fellow citizens of the same kingdom. We are members of the same household. We are family with one another. And we are being built together as stones to, to, to form a, a holy temple for, the, for God to dwell in his spirit. So resonate. What I'm here to tell you is that the life that you've always wanted is not found in success, in money, in the admiration or affection of other people. The life you've always wanted is found when we are willing to set everything we do on the foundation of Jesus, to abide in him, and then to be transformed and to live into our new identity. So as Christians, we, we know that our life is about Jesus, and we now know, we understand, that we are meant to do it together, not alone. And so I want to I wanna end by, by giving you guys an example of the, the Christians in the first century. These, this group of people who experienced God and were transformed by Him. And so I want to read to you from Acts 2, verses 42 through 47 of what the fellowship of believers looked like shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven and the Spirit came down to earth. So read with me Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. So again, we see the, the foundation is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together they, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So this group of Christians that understood that their entire life was about Jesus were living a certain way. Now, I don't believe that this has to be exactly the way that every Christian lives their life. It's more descriptive than it is prescriptive. But I think there's no better example that we're going to find than these early Christians who were, who were gripped by what Jesus had done for them, and were trying to live out uh, a life for him in that day. And so I want to point out uh, two things primarily they did together, and there's, there's lots of stuff under this, but the two things that, that we can observe, if we were to break it down very simply, that the early church did in unity in the body is they feasted together and they were devoted to one another. So they feasted together. They were constantly breaking bread together. They were eating together constantly. And they were feasting on God's word together. They were feasting on the apostles' teaching. So Resonate Church, um, our identity is one of unity. It's one of um, being members of the same household, of being 
citizens in the same kingdom and being stones in a temple with one another. And the way that we live out our unity together is by feasting together. So let's feast on the word of God together. Let's break bread together often. Let's celebrate with one another. Let's feast on what God has to offer us. And let's devote ourselves to one another. Let's devote ourselves to fellowship, to being together. Uh, Let's devote ourselves to prayer, to spending time um, going to God on behalf of other people, on our on behalf of ourselves, on behalf of one another. Let's devote ourselves to generosity, to living out a sacrificial servant kind of life like our Lord Jesus did himself. Let's be devoted to one another and let's have all things in common. Let's recognize that nothing in this world um, that we can touch, that we can hold, is going to carry over when we die. So let's use it to our advantage. Let's use it to to show people the hope and love of Jesus. Let's have all things in common, not keep and store anything to ourselves, but let's give it. Let's give it to each other. Let's have all things in common. So to conclude, I, w- I want to leave you with this, that the world is not going to stop telling you that the life you've always wanted is found in these faulty foundations. It is, it is on us together to be reminded that the firm foundation is Jesus. His life, death, and resurrection is what we should build our entire lives on. And we should do it together. Uh, I, I constantly think about uh, the, the imagery of a forest versus a lone tree. Uh, when a Christian is, finds himself rooted in, in, in God, uh, but he's left alone, it doesn't take a lot of wind to blow that tree over. But if we are are one tree in the midst of an entire forest, it takes a lot more wind to cause any damage because our roots are intertwined with one another and um, the the other trees around us are bracing us and they're they're cutting the wind away from us. So let's do that. Let's do life together. Let's be together in the Lord. Uh, I want to close by praying for you all. I hope that this has been encouraging and I hope that you can walk away from this series with an understanding of of how to pursue the life you've always wanted because it's not found in what the world has to offer. It's found in our King Jesus. So would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for what you've done for us. I I beg you, Lord, would you help all of us recognize that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, Would you help us to recognize that it was not any works of our own doing um, that led us to your salvation And the the chief aim of our entire life is to dwell with you, to remain with you, to abide in you. Because you are everything that is good within us. And God, in the core of our identity, you've made us new. You've adopted us into your family. You've ushered us into your kingdom as fellow citizens. And you're building us together. Everyone plays a part, God. You're building us together into a holy temple for your spirit to dwell. So God, I pray that that would be an encouragement to all of us. I pray that people in this room would press in to the church, God, your bride, and that, that for any unbeliever in this room, that they, they would be fed up with um, being a second-class citizen, of being without hope, being without family. And they would give themselves to you, God, that they would receive your grace. God, we love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you, Resonate. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.